This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. We're getting close to ending our series in Ephesians, uh, which is exciting. Um, it's, been, it's been amazing. If you've been following along with us or here, listening to the podcast, you know that Paul writes this letter to this small church or series of churches with this very intentional uh, layout of saying, this is who you are in Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you've done, you've now been adopted and chosen and brought into this family. And because of that, um, we now get to live in response to that. So if you remember, chapters one, two, three are all about who you are. And then at chapter four, it pivots. And all of a sudden, it's now, uh, it goes into how do we live in response to that. And I think it is summarized best by Ephesians 5, verse 1, which we talked about last week. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. I think it just sums it up perfectly. How do we respond to the kind of love God gives us? We mimic it. We imitate it the same way that children will imitate their parents in the same way that we will imitate people who um, we, we love and people who inspire us. The kind of love that we see in Christ should allow us to begin to start wanting to do the same thing. And then he, he goes on and starts talking about how we do that in different contexts of our lives and, and in business and in marriage and with children and all sorts of different things. But just as a reminder... Um, Kirk, who's on our council, emailed me this weekend with this amazing quote talking about imitation, and I think it's really important, so I wanted to read this to you. And it says, we imitate not because we want to become, become something we are not, for in Christ we have been made new. Rather, we imitate because the gospel has awoken us to who we actually are, and we now recognize we have a family to mimic. Love the wording of that. And um, just to encourage you, just us, when we talk about imitating Christ, this is not because we're trying to become something that we'll never be, but actually we're becoming something we already are. And we're learning those family behaviors and those family traditions and those family identity, just like an adopted child would into a new family. Yes, they are adopted, their status is changed, but then becomes a journey of learning what it's like to live within that family. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to get out here. And tonight, he talks specifically about how to imitate Christ in marriage. So any single people in the house tonight? Loud and proud. Come on, just wave your hand, right? Go ahead, look at who raised their hand, because that could be your next date. You're welcome. So thank you, Jesus. It's a good place. better than a club, my opinion. So... When I, when I say that, hey, we're going to talk about marriage tonight, that there's a group of you who are in, this, in here and you're married and you're like, oh, great, here it comes. And there's a group of you who are single and you're like, oh, great, here it comes. Um, and so I, I want to challenge uh, both of those mindsets. Uh, for those of us who are married in this room, I, I've been challenged this week with a fresh new perspective, and I hope you are too. Um, I hope that this rejuvenates and is part of the healing, maybe within your own marriage. Uh, for those of you who are, are single and intend not to stay that way, um, would this give you a, a clearer picture of what marriage was intended to be through Christ 
and what he's done for us. But then there's another part of you that the church has frankly failed to address, has failed to give you space within the church. And those of you who are single and you're just single, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing, you're like, everyone looks at you like, oh my gosh, how's that going? You know, it's like an incurable disease or something like that. Oh my, we're praying. And I I, want to shine light on that because unfortunately, Christian subculture has been the worst at that. Amen? See that bug? Whoa. (laughs) Squirrel. Sorry, ADD, kick it in. But if we look at scripture, specifically in Paul's writing, we don't only see... um, value in singleness, it actually is elevated to the point where Paul says, if you're not married, stay that way. So I just wanted to say, if you're in, if you're in this room and you're like, dang it, another relationship talk, can I, I just want to say this right now. There's nothing in the Bible that should make you feel less than because you are not married. Hear me. If anything, would you walk away tonight with a higher dignity and value, not because I said so, but because God has said so? You have what scripture calls an undivided heart. And to, and to lean into that, lean into that calling, lean into that, whether it's a season or whether it's your life, it is not a curse, right? It is not a something for you to bear. It is something for you to lean into and engage and even enjoy. And one of the reasons for that, this is something I want to point out, is the reason why it's important for us to talk about marriage, no matter where you are in life, is because we are all a part of a marriage between Jesus and his church. And I don't know if you know this, but marriage primarily is given to us as a signpost to the divine cosmic marriage between Jesus and us. And his, in his romance and his love with us. So if nothing else, walk away tonight with a deeper affection for Christ. Walk away with a deeper understanding of his affection for you. Because it's all displayed in that. So again, I, I think this, there's something for everyone here tonight. And so please don't walk away from here tonight feeling um, more sorrowful or down. This is an area of tension for you in your own faith journey. God has something for you tonight and it's life-giving. So if there's any sort of heaviness or guilt, just know that that's something you should pray through and not something you should carry with you. Got it? So a matter of fact, before we, before we dive into that, let's, um, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into the message tonight. Father, we thank you so much uh, for marriage. Lord, not just between man and wife, but between you and your church. God, thank you for covenant relationship that is stronger than seasons and circumstances, is stronger than brokenness and hurt. We need desperately a new idea and foundation of marriage. And would you deliver that more than culture, more than our friends, more than our parents? Would you dictate what marriage should be? In Jesus' name, amen. I was driving on the 78 freeway with Jen a few years back, and um, some kids are in the back, and we're driving, and, and if you're married for more than like, you know, three months, you just have those moments where you're not talking, you're just with each other, and there's nothing wrong or nothing great, just you're living life, you're existing, and I love those moments. I don't know about you, it's really just great. So I'm just driving down, sitting in the 78, probably in traffic, and, and as I'm there, Jen looks over at me. You know that look in her eye? And I'm just like, she looking, I'm like, what's up? 
you know, like, and she just looks at me, there's a sparkle in her eye, you know, I'm like, baby number three? I was trying to figure out what that look is, and all of a sudden, I kid you not, out of thin air, she just spits at me. <laughs> it's exa- oh, what? Like, with a dr- literally drank water, held it in her mouth, looked at me, waited for me to make eye contact, and like a raptor, you know, it's like some one of those like weird dinosaur things that just spits poison at you. It's like, it's like what? I'm like literally, I'm like, what, what, was, what was that? And she's like, we're getting too boring. <laughs> really? That was it. That was like your whole purpose is spitting in my face while driving. She's like, yeah. Like, what's happening to us? We're just getting too boring. I'm like, you could have just told me that and we could have worked through that. But, um, but now I have your saliva all over my face. It's great. Um, but the reason I tell that story is, is, is that's a little bit of my hope for tonight, is that sometimes, whether you're in a marriage or you're in a relationship or you're thinking about marriage, you just kind of sometimes start coasting, and all of a sudden, it's, you're not looking at it, you're not maintaining it, it's not growing, it's just kind of existing. And in that moment, I'll never forget, like it literally woke me up, not just because my wife spit in my face, but because the words that came out of her mouth, she said, there's we're becoming to where there's something that needs to awaken. And so that's a little bit of my prayer tonight. Is that no matter where you are in this room, that whether it's in your marriage or our understanding of marriage, even between us and Christ, that we would be awakened. And wake us up from where we fall ourselves into. And so in order to do that, uh, before we di- uh, read Ephesians, and if you, if you can stick with me the next few minutes, um, we have to lay a couple of foundational things for us to understand what Paul's about to say. Uh, one of those is a cultural background, and one of those is a theological background. And if we can understand both the culture and the theology that is already assumed by his readers, what Paul's about to say here will blow our minds. So first, culturally, this is a male-dominant culture. Um, and if you're like, just like America, no, 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 significantly Worse. I mean, women were viewed um, a little bit above property. Uh, they were had no say, no education, um, very little rights whatsoever, if not any at all. And uh, this was a this was truly a man's world. And uh, in this in this very chauvinistic society. It was supported by the Greek philosophy of the day. So I wanted to read you a little uh, excerpt from Aristotle's work talking about life, talking about the social infrastructure, about household codes. This is how households worked back then. So again, hear me. This is not scripture. I'm not saying this is good. I'm saying this would have been their understanding when this was being written. So he says this. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, which has been discussed already. Another of a father and the third of a husband. A husband and a father, we saw, rules over wife and children, both free. But the rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal, over his wife a constitutional rule. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter to command than the female just as the elder and full-grown is superior to the young and more immature. Needless to say, Aristotle would not be real popular right now in our culture, right? I mean, he just essentially saying, obviously males are better leaders. Obviously they're more fit for command. 
And everyone in that culture would have just nodded and said, yeah. This would have been their paradigm. He talks about three household cults. He talks about husbands and wives, parents and slaves and masters. It's interesting that Paul addresses all three of these codes in that order um, in his letter. And what he's doing is he doesn't come in, he doesn't condone this mindset. As a matter of fact, he challenges it. And he comes and he, and he, doesn't, he doesn't deconstruct these things. So these are part of culture. But this is what Christ looks like within these social constructs. This is where Jesus shows up in them. And the, the things they would have read would have flipped their worldview upside down. So that's one. That's the cultural background. This is, again, this, if you're sitting in a room, this is what you're naturally assuming about the husband and wife relationship. Secondly, let's talk about a theological background because the idea of husbands and wives, although this is maybe one of the most explicit texts about marriage, it is not where it begins. It actually begins in the very first pages of Scripture. So let's go back there. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Let's read about the intent that God had for a man and woman union. This is what he says in Genesis 1:27. He says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Listen to this, male and female, he created them. So in this epic opening poem of scripture that describes not only the creation story, but the heart of God, at its climax, he presents male and female together, creating an image of God. Now in that culture, every single God had an icon or an image attached to it. Normally it represents its strength or its ability. So in Egypt, when you would see the, the sphinxes, right, oftentimes it would combine an animal and a male type figurine and it would, and it would describe the kind of the, the strength or even sometimes the horror of these types of gods. This text enters in the story and it doesn't describe some sort of statue or pole or shrine. It says male and female together actually create the most accurate image of who God is like. So God is not male. God is not female. Although Jesus came as a man, the Trinity, the triune God is actually best represented through a male and female together. How they complement one another, their uniquenesses, their strengths together are a a truer picture of who God is rather than just looking at a man or a woman. So that's kind of our first theological background we have to understand. The second is understanding that that did not last forever. This beautiful, euphoric picture of unity that represented not just man and woman, but the Trinity itself was disrupted because of man's own decision. So let's read about that. Genesis 3, it says... When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Remember, this is when the serpent comes in and tempts. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord called to the man, where are you? So up to this point, we see no division within this relationship and in enters sin, and all of a sudden we have the first picture of division. All of a sudden, their, their nakedness is a very Jewish way of saying their shame. They're exposed. 
quite literally. They're seeing things that they never saw before, and their immediate response is twofold. The first thing they do is they hide. They sew fig leaves together. And we'll find out later is their second thing is after they experience shame, they immediately lead them to blame, which is still true in our culture today, isn't it? The minute we receive shame, what do we do? We hide, we cover, and we blame. Now, this is the, this pattern that has repeated itself throughout humanity and began in this moment. But what's unique here is that the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree was given before Eve was ever even created, is when Adam was around. God gives it to him to steward that command. And when the servant comes, he tempts the wife. And what I, what I hate about this story is that Adam is standing right there. And because he was given the command, he knows the consequences of it. He's probably watching Eve eat it, thinking like, is she going to die? And once she doesn't die, he's like, I'll have some. I'll take two. You know, like, he, I mean, what a, you know, what a tool. Like, this guy's like, not, ladies, not the guy you want to be, find yourselves with, like, Ladies first, you know. And so after, after they, and what's interesting is after Adam eats it, the eyes of both of them are open. And when God shows up on the scene, he looks and he asks for Adam. Where are you? Singular. He doesn't ask for them both. He doesn't ask for Eve. And, and I believe it's just, it's a dispic- it was a moment where Adam, even in his own sin, even in his own passivity of not stepping up and protecting his wife like he should have, could have had a moment where he said, God, I should have done something and I didn't punish me and not my wife. But he didn't, so Jesus had to. Jesus stepped in and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Punish me instead. But this, this fractured relationship enters the story. And what's interesting is because of their sin enters this curse where the serpent is cursed and the woman and the man. Now, I want to read you a specific line of this curse in Genesis 3.16. It says, your, talking to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's a fascinating curse because the husbands are like, I like the sound of that curse. Her desire will be for me. Of course it will. have that printed up in front of Jen's mirror every single day. Just remember that, Jen. It's part of the curse. <laughs> but the word desire, we find out later in Genesis 4, is the same word that means to control and to dominate. That's what Cain wanted to do to Abel. So here we have a part of their brokenness and part of their structure is here we have women in the midst of her own brokenness and shame, desires to control and dominate her husband, but the husband will rule over her. I, I, I meet with couples on a weekly basis, Jen and I do, and I see this play out all the time where something of brokenness and hurt comes into the story 
And rather than leaning into that pain and apologizing and repenting, immediately walls go up and words go out that says, whoa, 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 I'm going to cover myself. I'm going to blame you. Listen, if you wouldn't have said that, this wouldn't have happened. Or you always do that. You always, yep, I knew that. And all of a sudden, we're throwing arrows. And so what happens is we see men rise up to say, I'm going to rule over you. Maybe it's by a loud voice or maybe it's by the quiet treatment. And you see this thing. And then the woman said, well, you know, I'm going to dominate and control you. So I'm going to use manipulation or I'm going to withhold from you. And you see the ugliness of the curse play out in relationships all the time. This is nothing new. This is just the current state of what we are. Until Christ gave us a better way to live. Now what I'm about to present to you tonight, I'm going to let you know, is a counter narrative to what the culture is trying to tell you. See, the cultural narrative of love says find someone who's as compatible as you can be, be with them as long as it feels good, and once it doesn't, go be with someone who makes you feel happy because you deserve it. The counter narrative that I'm going to present to you tonight is not that. The counter narrative that I'm presenting you tonight is one of covenant, which means that you choose love and you choose love and you choose love. And it hurts, but in the end, it creates beauty instead of wounds. And it can only happen when we understand that all we are doing is mimicking what Christ has already done for us. So with that cultural background, that theological background, let's read what Paul has to say about imitating Christ in the midst of marriage. This is in Ephesians 5. We're going to start in verse 21. He says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself, I love this, as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So here we go. Without even knowing, I know there's automatically some red flags. Like, oh, he says submit. Forget that. I want a new translation, right? (laughs) Hold on. Guys, and they're just like, wait, what? What do I have to do to lay down my what for my wife? So just stick with me. There's four things we're going to cover tonight. Number one, and maybe the most important, is the Christian's role. Number two is the wife's role. Number three is the husband's role. And fourth, we're going to talk about the purpose of all of it. But before we can talk about wives and husbands, 
we have to talk about the Christian's role, and here's why. Because Ephesians 5.21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Here's the problem. The English Bibles that are sitting in your laps or that are on your phone have done us a little bit of a disservice. Let me explain what I mean by that. Let's pull up the next screen. This is what this looks like in the Greek. So when Paul is writing this, this is how he, if we were to read this word for word, this is what it sounds like. Be submitting yourselves to one another in reverence. Wives to the own husbands. And I want to stop right there. Something should stick out to you. There is no Greek command for wives to submit to their husbands. It doesn't exist within the Greek text. The verb submit does exist, but it it exists in the verse above when it says that we all submit one to another. So my first point I would like to present to you tonight is submission is the role of a Christian, not a wife. All of us have a role to play in submission. And so the verse should read like this. Submit yourselves one to another as unto the Lord, wives to your husbands. So this is now an example of a greater command given to the church. Does that make sense? So... um, and, and the reason why this is so huge is because oftentimes this verse is thrown out. I've seen it done in my own office. I've seen this done like, well, shouldn't she submit to me? Isn't that what the Bible says? And I'm like, uh, kind of? Technically, you're supposed to be submitting to one another. Yes, she does have a role to play in submission, but so do you. And, and oftentimes this is used to kind of like beat the, the other one up and to Again, fall back into Genesis 3. Like, I'm going to rule over her with a Bible verse that doesn't actually say that. And, and so this word submit, it's a fascinating word. Hypotosami is this Greek word, and it means to place orderly, or to place under in an orderly fashion. So let me give you an example of that. You guys ever, you guys ever gone to a red light, right, and you're late? It's early in the morning, you pull up to that red light, and all of a sudden you just, you're sitting there, it's not turning green, and what do you do? He's like, right? <laughs> and immediately what happens in your mind? Like, maybe it's broken, right? And like 15 seconds goes by, and eventually, what do you start doing? You're like, okay, I'm going to count to 10. And if it, <laughs> if it doesn't turn green in 10 seconds, I'm going to go. And if I get pulled over, I'm going to tell the cop, like, the light was broken. I sat there for so many seconds, right? I mean, we all do it. So submission, this Greek word submission, literally is the same idea as when you stop at a, a stoplight, right? It's you have the, all the power and the ability. No, there's no chain keeping you there. You can just bulldoze right through that stoplight if you wanted to. Submission means you look at something not because of its power, but because the greater good it's going to cause, and you choose not to bulldoze through it. And you sit, and you wait. And this, this is interesting because this is the image of what submission looks like one to another. This is how we start to interact with each other. So when we come up with someone who disagrees with you at your open table, and you're like, well, no, I, I think this, or I think this, stop. How do you place yourself under in an orderly way that's going to edify this, not be, because the reality is you being right is not going to edify, is not going to glorify Christ. You loving that person will. And so this, there's this, this picture, and I want us to get that, but let's move on for a second to, to the wives, because it immediately goes on as he says, 
in the wife's role. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. We'll talk about what headship means in a second. Of which he is a savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. This is what happens oftentimes when I'm, I'm counseling couples, right? The wives are there and they're like, okay, the Bible says I have to like, you know, submit to my husband. I'm supposed to do this role. And so what they do is they go and they all of a sudden they're waiting and they realize and they start looking around and they're like, maybe my husband's broken. <laughs> I'm going to give him 10 more seconds <laughs> to get this right. And if he doesn't, I got to go somewhere. I got to do something, and my husband is now holding me back from what I want to do. And the command here, which I think is so profound and beautiful, Paul's laying out, he says, listen, the, the call to submit to your husband has nothing to do with if your husband works or not. It has nothing to do if your husband earns it or not. It has nothing to do if your husband has loved you well. Every, every decision you make to submit to your husband is tied to your reverence for Christ, not him. Because you want something bigger. Can you imagine if all of us just like looked at every red light like, ah, I'm just going to go through that one. The chaos and the carnage that would exist within our culture, well, this is what happens in marriage when we don't submit. Not just the wife, the husband as well, but because Paul's talking specifically to wives, oftentimes, and I see this happen, guys fail. They give their wives ample reasons not to submit to them. Poor choices, selfishness, passivity, aggression, whatever it may be, you're like, ah, forget it. It's better if I just bulldoze through. And what Paul's appeal to is stop looking at your husband and start looking at Jesus. Now, I'm going to say this right now. Does that mean you allow abuse to continue? Does that mean you allow infidelity and things like that? I would say scripture says no to that. This is not a command that allows you to stay engaged in a toxic environment. But the reality is, is most of us don't find ourselves in that situation. Most of us find ourselves in places we just feel like it's uncomfortable. So hear me out. If you have found yourself in an abusive relationship or you previously were in one and you've gone out, that's fine. I'm not talking about this. What I'm talking about are these day-to-day moments where it's so easy to just want to bulldoze through when saying, hey, let's, let's look at Jesus for a second and let's just stay put and let's just honor God and through that, respect our husband. This is what kind of Paul gives to the wife. So again, if you're here and you're like, I, I don't have to submit to my husband. Well, if you're a Christian, we have to submit to everyone. We mutually submit. And that means your husband sometimes too. I love um, the Amplified Bible in 1 Peter 3, verse 1, when Peter's talking about wives, it says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, not as inferior, but out of respect for their responsibilities and trusted the husbands and their, I love, and their accountability to God. And so partnering with them, so that even if some do not obey the word of God, they may be won over to Christ without discussion by the godly lives of their wives. I love that verbiage because what it's pointing to is submission has nothing to do with you being right or wrong or you being walked or no, no, no. It has to be with the mission of Christ. It says your husbands are going to be accountable. So here's the good news, ladies. If you're in a marriage, you're in a marriage someday and you find yourself submitting to your husband when he's an idiot, he's accountable to God. 
And when you choose to submit, despite your husband's shortcoming, what you are saying is a bold declaration of faith that Christ is able to work through even your husband's shortcomings. When Jen chooses to come and to submit, to come under and say, okay, Benji, this is where you think you're leading our family. This is the decision you want to make. It doesn't mean that we don't talk about it. It doesn't mean that we come to a mutual agreement on it. But there are moments where she says, okay, I'm going to trust you. And what she's saying is she believes not that I'm perfect, but that Christ is and his ability to redeem even what I failed to do is immense in her heart because every ounce of submission that comes to me is because she ultimately submitted to Christ. And that's the only way that empowers her because I don't give Jen enough reasons to submit to me. I haven't given her really any. I'm so flawed. She'll be the, you know, she probably wouldn't tell you because she's so sweet, but if you really knew within her mind, you, you'd see, I have given her ample reasons not to submit to me, but because she loves Jesus and her reverence for him, there are days she comes in, she's like, you know what? Yeah, let's do that, Benji. And you know what that does for me as a husband? <sighs> Wind in my sails. Wow. You trust me. And, and I know I don't deserve it. I know I haven't earned it, but those moments, I, I kid you not, just like, wow. And you know what it feels like? It feels like responsibility. It feels like accountability before God. There's been moments where I've literally told God, I'm like, God, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting you. I'm stepping out in faith. And if you don't show up, my family suffers, so you have to show up. And Jen's praying the same prayer. God has to show up. And I think maybe the best example of this for us in our lives is church planting. If you've ever heard our story, Jen will tell you she never wanted to marry a pastor. <laughs> um, when I was in high school, I left music, that, the career I thought I was going into, to go be a pastor. And she didn't want to go work in a church, much less plant one. She wanted to go into music. And here we are, <laughs> 12 years and four kids later. It's a lot of submission. A lot of mutual submission. When we planted this church, there's a lot of moments where she said, I'm trusting you. But tell you what, there's also a lot of moments where I looked at her and I, and I told her, I said, Jen, I will not plant this church unless you're 100% on board. And I will not make decisions unless you completely sign off on them. Not because I don't think that I'm capable, but because I don't want to. I want to mutually submit to my wife. Have you guys enjoyed open tables? You guys benefited from those? That was, that was my wife's idea. Even the name of it, this desire. Over the next few weeks, when you see this place aesthetically turn around and become even, um, and just have just new life and beauty on it, so much of that is in the heart of my wife. And there's so much that it would be so easy for me just to walk forward. I'm like, this is where we're going, this is what we're doing. And I sit and I wait and it's slower and sometimes harder, but it's way more meaningful and more beautiful because I believe that I have an equal responsibility to come into this relationship. And as we submit one to another, and as she submits to me, not because I'm great, but because he's great, we see fruit in our lives. But husbands, buckle up. You ready? Guys in the room? They're so nervous. Like, what? What does that mean? You should be nervous. Um, I've never read this verse ever in my life and just been like, I'm nailing this. <laughs> Got it. Never once. Let me read this to you, and you can just hear why. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed it. And all the guys are like, oh, I get it. <laughs> but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does to church. Listen, in that culture, the previous verses we read about wives submitting to husbands, most of the audience would have been like, at the sound of mutual submission, they would have been like, what? And then we start talking about wives submitting their husband. They kind of relax a little bit, like, okay, yeah, okay, I like where you're going. This is normal. And even the women would have been like, yeah, this is not, nothing too new other than you, what, we had to mutually submit? Let's talk some more about that. But when it gets to this part, it would have flipped their paradigm on its head. Paul spends three times the length on the husband's role other than the wives. The wives would have just been like, I'm doing this already, but now I'm just doing this out of reverence for Christ, not because my husband told me to. But husbands, this would have been jarring to their cultural worldview. Wait a minute, you're telling me that I have a responsibility in this new relationship with Christ to love my wife, which would have been shocking enough, but to love her in such a way that Christ loved his church. Wait a minute, didn't you just tell me a few chapters earlier, Paul, that he died for her? He hung on a bloody cross when she did nothing to deserve it. That kind of love. And Paul hits it again and again and again. This is how you love your wife. Not because she's earned it, not because she's perfect, not because she has done every single expectation you had, but because Christ, in the midst of your imperfection and your brokenness, came down and gave you his life. You go do the same thing for your wife. I am without excuse to do anything but love Jen, no matter what kind of day she's having, and I fail at it again and again and again. And it doesn't help if I beat myself up. It helps when I go and look at the cross. It helps every single morning when I think literally upon the sacrifice that Jesus gave for me when I was at my worst so when Jen's in her moments of weakness or pain or hurting, I don't treat her because of how she deserves. I treat her the way Christ has treated me in my weakness and in my brokenness and in my pain. And I just want to confess to you tonight, I am a long way away from where I need to be. But my, my deepest desire oh, is to stand before my Father someday in heaven And to hear his words, not just about a church, but about my marriage, well done, good and faithful servant. And I grieve the moments where I've missed opportunities and because they're far too often. Do you see what Paul's doing here? Do you see what the Holy Spirit's doing here? You see, the curse says that the woman will try and control a man and a husband will try and rule his wife. But in Christ, a wife will not control, she will submit. In Christ, a husband will not rule, he will sacrifice everything. Paul's reversing the curse. He's bringing us back to Genesis 1. He's bringing us back to that Trinitarian state the beautiful selfless dance of constantly serving one to another. And the only way this is even possible 
is because this was already done for us. And we just, and we, and we mimic it. We do our best. We lean into that. We say, God, help me. Help me to love my wife the way you've loved me. Wives, help, help me love my husband the way that you've, you've come and laid yourself down for me. And, and as we focus on that, we find ourselves in the garden instead of in a curse. And this is what, what Paul's trying to, to get at. And by the way, that, that, that word headship that gets so sticky and unfortunately, it's used in the wrong context so often times. Well, isn't the, isn't the man the head of the wife? And, and I would say, yes. Biblically, I think there's, I don't know if you can make another argument, but this is what I'd like to challenge. What does that mean, to be head? Well, based on this verse, if we're just looking at this context, the only defining act of headship in this context is sacrifice, meaning I go first. I hurt more, I lose more, I serve more for the sake of the radiance of my wife. That's headship. So if you're in here and you're tempted, if you're a man to ever throw that verse around like, well, I'm, I'm the head of the wife, I'm, go for it. But you better know what that means. It means when the enemy comes to attack your home, you go first, willingly. It means when your wife is in a season of, 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 of darkness or doubt or, or depression, you're fasting and praying more than she is. Headship looks like that you will lay it down so that you can present your wife before Christ someday without blemish, right? Blameless, holy, radiant because of what you laid down. Again, shocking. And, and sometimes overwhelming call for husbands. How, how, how do we do this? Again, in Peter's letter, in chapter three, he says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Just be considerate. Guys, when's the last time you just thought about, you just took the drive home, you said, how can I love my wife better? I love the last part of this verse. It says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I don't know how this works. It's, it's a little like tagline he says, but there's something about our ability for God to hear our prayers and how we treat our wives. And that doesn't scare you, it should. Husbands, if you're ever like, man, God's not answering my prayers, just how are you treating your wife? Again, this isn't an equation he's laying out, but I think there's something about our connectedness to God with our selflessness to our wife. That God is just, and it's not that God's not responding, he's probably just saying like, I can't tell you other things to do until you get this right. Focus on this. I was trying to think of ways. <laughs> it's so sad. I was, I was sitting down, like I was studying this message, I'm like, what's in a good illustration of me like, you know, laying down my wife, or laying down my life for, for my wife? Hey, what's a, you know, what's a good illustration of me being a good picture of like headship? And I was like, crickets. <laughs> just like, Dang it, like I couldn't, couldn't think of anything. Jen was here last service, she's like, no, like, thanks, babe. <laughs> but I think in that moment, I, I found myself looking for these like grand gestures of sacrificial love. And all I could think about was doing the dishes sometimes, or 
packing the kids' lunches, massaging my wife's feet. Again, not, not, not as often as I should. But I think maybe that's the point. And then you might have a day where you get to do some grand romantic gesture laying down your wife, but I th- laying down your life. Sorry. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> but as you, as you think, as you look forward to that, how is that a part of your daily rhythm? How do you lay down your life daily? And sure, maybe you'll have like a home intruder someday and you come to the rescue and like, you know, but probably not. But I guarantee your, your wife needs you to pray for her, to bless her, to learn her love languages and to meet her there. And this is why, last, last thing, the purpose. He says, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man, and again, he quotes Genesis, right? He's going back to that theological foundation. For this reason, a man will leave, a, leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, and here, don't miss this, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. That is a bold statement that right here Paul is saying that that, the idea of a man leaving his father and mother and cleaving to his wife, the picture of marriage was always and is always pointing towards Christ and his bride, the church. Why is it so important to, to rethink and reimagine and repurpose marriage? Because the world is looking at our marriages as some sort of clue on how God treats us, whether we like it or not. But Paul is he's, he's, he's begging this church, we have to get this right. Husbands, you have to love your wives. The way that Christ has loved, there has to be mutual submission. Wives, even if your husband is a loser, you can still do it because you love Jesus and he's, and he's asking this church, you've got to get this right because marriage is a picture to the world of what Christ's love is like for us. And so far, if we can be frank, we have not done that. But yet, he continues to call us to it. So real quick, here's, here's how we can do this. Just, just to paint a picture. Well, how do we mimic Jesus? Well, there's three things that Jesus has done. Um, Number one is the incarnation. So when Jesus left his heavenly dwelling, his throne, he made a conscious decision not to become less God, but to become more humble. And fully God became fully man. And and this is the Christmas story. It's often the theological term is called the incarnation. It sounds a lot like what he's asking wives to do. Mimic Jesus in the incarnation. Don't become less valuable, less dignified, less powerful, but just choose in your dignity and value and power to come underneath and to say, you know, I'm, I'm here to love and to serve and to respect. And again, if that just rubs you the wrong way, then just look more at the incarnation. Because if I, I don't know how I'm going to submit to my husband, well, how did God come and submit to you? It's what he did. He came underneath our rules and our chaos and our pain and ultimately our sin. So if we can't submit, then we have failed to look at the incarnation. Husbands, when you look at the crucifixion, right, this 
this incredibly sacrificial and overwhelming picture of ultimate love, a sinless man hung up on a thief's cross. This is our picture. So when I sit down with the husband, and he's like, you don't get it. My wife, she, she, she drives me nuts. She does this. She talks to me like this way. My thing is not like, hey, you know what? Maybe your wife will get better because she may not. But look at Jesus. Do you understand what he's done for you? Do you understand that as he hung on that cross and he thought about your face and your life and all your sin and he's praised that prayer, Father, forgive him. He does not know what he's doing. It was not just for you to be right with God. It was for you to be right with your wife. You now have the ability to focus and meditate on the crucifixion and it leads you to love. And what happens when we focus on the incarnation and the crucifixion, inevitably what happens is resurrection. The marriages that I've seen do this best, the only way I can describe the marriage is it's life. It's life. I've never seen a perfect marriage, but I've seen one full of resurrection life. And if you're here and you're like, what if, what if only one of us chooses Know that you're still choosing Jesus, not your spouse. You're choosing what he's asking you to do. And Christ has the ability to work in your spouse. Again, this is not talking about abuse or situations where there's, there's a need to get out. But if you're in a marriage where it's just hard, maybe you're looking to the wrong source. I want to leave you with this quote by Tim Keller. says, in any relationship, there will be frightening spells in which your feelings of love dry up. And when that happens, you must remember that the essence of marriage is that it is a covenant, a commitment, a promise of future love. So what do you do? You do the acts of love despite your lack of feelings. You may not feel tender, sympathetic, and eager to please, but in your actions, you must be tender, understanding, forgiving, and helpful. And if you do that as time goes on, you will not only get through the dry spells, but they will become less frequent and deep, and you will become more constant in your feelings. This is what can happen if you decide to love. Love that. By the way, if you, if you just need a good marriage book, Tim Keller, who wrote this quote, has a one called The Meaning of Marriage. It's brilliant. And there's so many others. If you, if you, again, if you just need help, you know, send me an email this week. Um, if, if, if my wife and I can't help you, we can definitely point you to a direction that can. But the, the takeaway is this. I know your spouse isn't perfect. I know you aren't perfect. And I know your marriage isn't perfect. And even those who are yet to be married, I know your future spouse isn't going to be perfect. I know you're not going to be perfect. What I know is that Jesus is. And if we can spend as much time focusing on his righteousness than our spouse's shortcomings, then our spouse and us will reap the benefit. 
and again, this is not to be insensitive for those who are in that pain. I understand that. And this is what I want to do. I want to just pray right now. I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to come and to kind of just, whatever is going on in your mind and your heart right now, let him speak to it. And again, again, if you're, if you're single, don't miss this. If anything, would you just be raptured by the power of the gospel tonight? And would you rejoice in, in, in our divine husband in Jesus? He's enough. Can I just say that again? He's enough. His love is enough. If that weren't so, then they would not, the scriptures would not talk such so highly about singleness. But see, for Paul, who we actually, most people believe he was married and his wife either passed away or left him at his conversion, would write and say, no, no, no. Jesus is enough. So would you just bow your heads with me? I'm just gonna take a minute of silence. Whatever you need to just do, maybe, you're, maybe God's prompting you to repent. Maybe he's prompting you to, to love in a different way. Maybe he's just meeting a need in your heart right now. Would you just, just take a minute and let him speak to our hearts?